Well, hello, happy Sunday to everyone at Hill Country Bible Church, those of you online, everyone at Steiner, everyone at Leander, and everyone here at Lakeline. My name's Tim, one of the pastors here, thrilled to be part of this church family. If you're really new to us, you don't know how new I am. Uh, my family and I moved here from the um, second great state of California to the best great state of Texas. And I've got one quick update before we completely focus in on Christmas and everything that Jesus did in his uh, arrival uh, about how much I've been baptized and died in the great state of Texas. Um, now I have now attended both a, a Longhorn and an Aggie football game, so thank you to those in the church who have made sure that I have been introduced. All the things. I know, sorry, shh, not Civil War time right here. It's just... Uh, and then the second thing is, I noticed this week something unique that's got to be a good sign. I noticed I have like a pecking order preference about the big cities in Texas, which is double dumb because I haven't been to most of those big cities in Texas. But I'm starting to get a sense of like, hey, here's what I think about Dallas and here's what I think about San Antonio and here's what I think about Houston. And if you're hoping that I will tip my cards today and tell you what I think, I'm, I'm not that dumb. But... But I am dumb enough to think that for whatever reason, I have a preference. Now, we are in part 619 of our 1,200-part series on the Sermon on the Mount. And growing up on the West Coast, anytime I flew anywhere, I would always see a mountain range. Most of the times I would hop on an airplane, I would fly over mountain ranges. And mountain ranges are beautiful to fly over, especially from this time of year on, because they've usually been dusted with snow. And it's actually really, I don't know, orienting, I guess, for your place in the world to fly over a mountain range because it just puts so many things into massive perspective. And it really settles you and grounds you. But even more than flying over the mountains, I really enjoyed any opportunity we got to drive up into the mountains and walk through them. I know what those mountains smell like. I know what those mountains sound like. I know what they feel like in July versus February. They're very different places. And as we move through Scripture, sometimes it's very helpful to move at an altitude and a speed that helps me calibrate, wait, what is First and Second Kings talking about? Just remind me. And sometimes it's good to mosey through a scripture. And we have been moseying through the Sermon on the Mount for a good reason. Today's passage is an excellent example of three concepts that seem disparate. That they seem like, Jesus, you are grinding gears hard and fast here on why we talked about that to this to the next thing but moving at this speed is going to be very beneficial today because as we move through it, our consideration for the passage today is the Father's heart for you and your world. There is deep significance in what Jesus pushes on today because as he's talked about a number of issues that he wants to set on your life, he's now going to remind you of who the Father is and then where culture at large stands. So in our time together, open to Matthew chapter 7. Those of you that have old school Bibles, they're printed on paper. Um, you remember turning the dial on a TV or setting your alarm in the morning on the clock. Those of you that click your way there, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. Verses 7 through and beyond. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? 
Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Ooh, passage on prayer and giving and goodness. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also for them, for this is the law and the prophets. Okay, I got to be a good person too, golden rule. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Oh, and a whole lot of people are going to hell, and not a lot of people are going to heaven. Wait, Tim, wait a second. What just happened in the Bible passage today? I'm glad you asked. The passage finds us working on three concepts. And there is a beautiful sequence as we mosey through them today. There's a lot of unity just in the three concepts, but I'd like to remind you that we've been moving through an entire mountain range, one set piece of teaching from Jesus that Matthew wrote down for us. So pull out your brains and let's work through the first one. Well, the first idea is that we're going to work to believe that God is more than able, that he's good. This sounds too simple to you right now. This is actually more of a challenge than the screen would indicate. And let me explain through a story that happened in my life probably a dozen years ago. Um, my second-born son's name is Judah, Judah Benjamin. Our firstborn is named Micaiah Samuel. We've got double prophet and double tribe. For those of you Bible nerds in the room, okay. No, just me. All right. And uh, Judah was probably seven and he was in the back seat of our car, because that's where you put your young ones. We're driving through our neighborhood, and there was a, a, a house with a real pitched driveway. And there were two dads talking at the top of the driveway, and a two-and-a-half-year-old hanging out in the driveway with them. Well, as I drove past, it was enough for a toddler to turn his head and see the noise of my car. And toddlers are 80% head. Okay, they're like, they're like mostly cranium, Right? And so when a toddler turns quickly to look at something, the amount of momentum that is happening just in the world of physics for a toddler is a challenge. Then you add in the pitch driveway. So this toddler turns to me to watch me drive by, starts to like, you know, fumble down towards the driveway, and the dad kicked into dad mode. I started to slow down. If you're like, Tim, I hope you did the right thing. Of course I did the right thing. I slowed down, and I'm watching the whole time. But the dad in the driveway... All the spidey sense kicked in. And he knew, he just knew, sound, toddler, squirrel, 80%, mass, gravity, all these things, right? And so he just instinctively, he's talking to his buddy, stepped over, reached, snatched his two-and-a-half-year-old by the back of the shirt, and, like, it was the definition of the verb snatched. Snatched that child right back, and like the child flew through the air anime style. Legs, arms, all of them out in front, like eyes, like boom, boom, boom. And uh, dad pulled the child into his chest and just kept talking to his buddy. In dad world, you just keep going, right? Step, snatch, grab, talk, gone. I walked by and I saluted that dad. I was like, bro, well played. And, and I just keep driving. Five-ish houses later, the most interesting thing happened, and it framed the way I think about God. My son, seven years old, watched the whole thing happen too, and he said, man, that dad was angry at his son, wasn't he? And I was like, what dad? He's like, well, there's a dad back there that 
Son started to go a direction he didn't want it to go, I guess, because dad, I watched him snatch it. And then arms and legs are flying anime and like all the eyes. And, and I was like, wait a second, Judah, do you think that the dad was mad? He's like, oh yeah, that dad was mad. I could tell. And I was like, interesting, Judah, because I just watched a daddy be a hero and protect his son. It's very interesting what you see in the actions of a father through the filter of whether you think he's angry or not. Because it's going to determine whether you think he's saving you from something or he's snatching you from something good. Let's move a little bit through the the larger Sermon on the Mount, the mountain range. And I'll remind you that back in chapter 5, Jesus taught about how to pray. Y'all remember that? Pastor Jim was teaching that and he had a really funny um, acronym. And I'm not going to bring it up because it would be forced, but it was clever. And he taught, listen, don't babble, don't repeat, don't be obsessed with your part in prayer It's good to be preoccupied with who you're praying to. And so then he gave a model prayer. So in chapter 5, Jesus taught how to go about praying. Well, he's really not teaching about prayer right here. He's using prayer as as an opportunity to talk about who. Who is important. Let's notice this in our passage. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to ask him? If you look at the the word count and the word order and the word direction, this passage in Matthew 7 is contrasting the way we go about interacting with our kids and the way we go about interacting with our father. And if you came to church to get your ego stroked, I'm so sorry, but Jesus is like, if we're comparing you and God, there is a gap. And by comparison, the level of God's goodness, it you just like... If LeBron James and I both jumped vertical, there would be, if, if, never mind. I'm not going to step into any more Texas debates right now. I don't want to do it. The contrast is between us and the Father. And then Jesus goes on in the passage, and then he describes an extent. He, he describes a depth. He describes a quality. In this phrase right here, how much more will your Father who is in heaven That phrase, he's trying to draw their attention to write what he wants it said on. Uh, Today, we're going to make references uh, to two different audiences that are probably niche, not all of us, okay? Sci-fi nerds in the room, you're going to be happy in a second because we're going to talk about sci-fi writing in the 90s and 2000s. But art history majors, the two of you at our church uh, that, that have that degree, you're about to be so happy. So for a period of time, the the best visual medium of of storytelling was painting, right? You could paint a picture that, like, told a whole story. And there's lots of different techniques that painters use to draw your attention. Um, The rule of thirds or centering or the the whole, I forget, the, the rectangles, that thing. But chiaroscuro is a painting technique where you use dark and light in a painting to draw attention to where you want it. The easiest, most famous refer or like example of this is the painting of the prodigal son. Y'all remember that? Of course you do in all your meme scrolling. Go back to the classics, y'all. In the prodigal son, there is a father standing holding his son who's returned to him. And if you look it up on your phone now or online if you're watching from somewhere else, most of the painting is dark. It's dark brown. It's almost black. And then there's some gold mixed in right at the embrace and the, the transition of affection from the father to the son, that's where the painter wants you to notice. Jesus is using this intensifier, this clause, this descriptive language to say, 
this is where I want you to pay attention. Because what you believe about the goodness of God is going to color all of your interactions with him. And all of your interactions with him is your spiritual walk. It's his call to be obedient and sometimes answer the call where it's like, I want to take you further than you've been. Sometimes it's a call for you to set something down that is breaking his image in you or in others. Sometimes it's you going to him to need things in prayer. So prayer is the vehicle that Jesus is talking about that is going to illuminate what you believe about the goodness of God. And in the habit of prayer, you learn some things that you believe about him. In orthodoxy, we have created words that describe with accuracy what we believe about the person of God. We believe that God is all-powerful. The fancy word that we've got for that is omnipotent. Omni, all, potent, ability. God is all ability. We believe that he knows all things, that he's omniscience, that he's all knowledge, that he's omniscient. But then it, it almost seems like, like theologians have got a few words. He's in all places. He's omnipresent. But then we start to make judgment calls about he himself, his personality, his character. And we're like, well, I know he's a good God, but sometimes he's a just God. And I know that he's a merciful God, but sometimes he's a God who judges. And man, I've got something in my life that is heavy that I really want to be different. I want my circumstances to be different. And I don't know which God the Father I'm going to get today, the 51% that's merciful or the 49% that's just. And that's not the right way to think about who God is because God is always all of who he is. God is the most consistent person you could conceive of. And so it is good for you to believe in the consistency of God, including a foundation of goodness on which you can build his ability, his knowledge, his presence. But I think that's sometimes where we struggle. It's easy for me to believe the concept of a God being powerful. It's harder for me to believe that I can walk into his office and that he'll be good any moment I interact with him. I might catch him on a, a bad day. I might catch him rough. And maybe not even because there's something going on with him, but I might have been a knucklehead for the last few weeks, months, couple of years. And walking into his office, it feels like literally my personhood can diminish his goodness. And in that way, the way we see how God grabs us in situations to either protect us or to diminish us is mostly connected to what you believe about his goodness. So one of the challenges in the passage this weekend is that you believe God is able, that God knows, that God is present. Do you really believe that no matter what, what you're going through, God in this moment is good? And I'm going to include that belief in how I go about approaching you. Because what you believe about God's goodness is either a tether that's going to hold you down and you're like, I'm going to be afraid, or it's going to elevate what you invite him into in your life. And it's going to be something that elevates what he's allowed to invite you into as well. I think about it um, through a little bit and how we go about praying over things. How we go about praying over things is um, either a desire for to God to control the outcome. I don't like what's going on. My husband's being a knucklehead. Tim, I like that phrase. Let's use that. My husband's being a knucklehead right now. God, would you just blah, 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 blah. Um, hey, my kids, Lord, I love my kids. Lord, I love, I, I love my kids. But Lord, right now, 
If I'm completely honest, could you just blah, 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 blah. And it's almost like God is off to the side and you're mostly focused in your prayer life. As you interact with him, you're more focused on a desired outcome. I want a circumstance to be different. I need my bank account to look different. I need my husband to look different. I need my kids to be different. And this concept says, when you anchor yourself, when you put omni as an adjective, all, in front of one of the character traits of God, like his goodness, God, I'm going to share with you a burden rather than a desired outcome. Let me explain it a couple of different ways. One through a quote and one through a circumstance in my life. Tim Keller says this, In God himself, we have the headwaters and source of all we desire, even if one of our tributaries goes dry. Oh, that was worth coming to church for. And once again, another Tim said it. Look at that. Tim Keller says this, in God himself, we have the headwaters and source of all we desire, even if one of the tributaries of joy runs dry. So my wife grew up in the Pacific Northwest, but she went down to college in Southern California, and she met a boy, she fell in love, and she spent 20 years apart from her family when her dad was diagnosed with terminal colon cancer. And she came to me with a burden and a desired outcome. And she said, I'd love for us to move back up to Seattle. And I was struggling because I absolutely adore her dad. He was uh, much more of a father to me than my own dad was. And I just couldn't see that that outcome was the way I wanted to carry that burden. And so I would argue with her, well, what if, what if this? We, what if we drive up there a couple of times a year? Because it's an 18-hour one-way drive. That's a Texas-sized drive. And so I thought I was making this grand overture of a supportive statement. But what I was doing is I was controlling what her burden was with the outcome that I wanted. I wanted an outcome where we drove up there a couple times a year. And she's like, babe, I've been apart from my dad for two decades. And he doesn't have much longer. I, I don't want to make two drives a year. And I said, okay, how about this? Two drives, and then I'll fly you up a couple of times a year. She's like, I don't think you're hearing. I'd like to move to Seattle. And I'd love to tell you that it was one afternoon of conversation that both of us were so emotionally, relationally, and spiritually mature that we were able to resolve it. But it weighed on us for a season. I don't remember because I'm bad at remembering. I'm good at planning. It could have been weeks. It could have been a couple of months where we were not on the same page in our marriage. And that was a lot of weight. And finally one day I thought to myself, Tim, you dummy, you know how to do this. Share with your wife the burden you feel and that you don't see the answer to rather than telling her the answer that you think is best. And so I remember we sat on the curb on a walk. We were on Sahel Lane. And I remember telling her, babe, here's what I'm worried about. I'm worried that I won't be able to provide for my family and I'm worried I'll lose my life in ministry and I'll just grab a job and it's going to take me off track for years. And she said, I hear you. And I said, but I also hear you. You want to be with your daddy. So here's what I'm, I'm just going to tell you. I feel the weight of not being able to provide for my wife and kids, but I hear your burden as well. And I'm just going to put that in your hands and I'm going to trust you to handle it well. She said, can I look for a house and for a job? And I said, you can. You can look for a house and a job. And I don't know if it was two or three days later, she came back to me and she said, we can't move to Seattle. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, is 
too many things. And she actually then started to process the burden of what she was carrying as her daddy passed. And it was this crazy thing where we'd been married for like 20 years at that point, right? And you'd think we'd be better at communicating, not a desired outcome. I want to control you and I want to control you. We had so much history together that I could have shared my burden with her right off the bat. But I'm so transactional. I'm so controlling. I'm so like, well, let me plot and plan and do this. And Jesus is saying in this passage, can you get to a point in your walk with your father where you just share a burden with him? God, I'm real worried about this. And I trust that you're able to do something, and I trust that you know what's best. And I'm going to trust that your goodness is going to govern how you answer this. Because that changes things you think about God to things you believe about God to things you have conviction about and then eventually things that you have comfort in. And I'm telling you, there are some moments that I've walked through in my life where this refrain that Naomi Rain sings in a song, how much more... It is so good to anchor yourself into the person, the character, the goodness of God because of how many things it governs. Now, we need to keep moving. This is not the only thing that we are challenged to work on. He asks us to work on being a person who is more than fair to one who's good. Okay? Well, he asks us then to work on being a person who's more than fair, but to be a person who's good. We go straight from all of this asking, seeking, knocking, bread, stone, fish, serpent, how much more, to this. It's the golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Ha! Huh, so many fun things just in this one phrase. If you um, didn't grow up in church, this is the golden rule, okay? Do to others what you want them to do to you, okay? It's just that sitting in it, meandering through it, going on a hike through this mountain rather than flying over is super fun. I would like to equip you with something. Anytime you hear Jesus use this phrase, you always know what it's about, okay? This phrase right here, this is the law and the prophets. What the heck does that even mean? I'm so glad you asked. I've got a print Bible here because these are fantastic. And the print Bible right here, I've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, blah, 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 blah. That's this chunk of my Bible, okay? Sometimes we call it the Old Testament. Sometimes we call it the Hebrew Bible. This is the Law and the Prophets. So Jesus is literally saying in this quick clause, in this single concept, this is a good way to describe all of this. He's saying that this concept is so foundational, it is so elevated, it is so spiritual that anything you read in your Old Testament eventually can work its way back to this concept. Isn't that so cool? There's just a couple of times Jesus uses that phrase, and when he does it, he's saying that the principle I just taught you is gargantuan. All right. Now, there are some other things that we should note about this verse. This is the inverse of a concept he taught earlier, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Remember, eye, eye for eye, tooth for a tooth. You guys are good. You remember that was like five weeks ago. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth limits how much you mess with people. And so if you're thinking of messing with someone's goat or their chickens or their, I don't know, their grain, hey, just remember that if you take their goat, they get a goat back. If you get in a fight and you break their arm, your arm breaks. And it also limits my retaliation. Bro, he stole your goat. You're only allowed one goat back. You don't burn his farm, okay? So it limits damage and death. This is the inverse. 
for a while in science fiction, there was kind of a lazy out. Okay, so if you were watching your Doctor Who or your Nathan Fillion on the epic show, Fire, Fly, ah, I don't remember. Ah, I just lost my nerd card. I'm so sorry. Um, there was a trope. There was this easy, quick storytelling device, right, where any quick story is like characters, conflict, the conflict's real bad, they call it the climax, and then the resolution. To pivot from conflict to resolution, that's the payoff moment in a story where you're so excited, they would introduce this sci-fi sounding phrase, and somebody on the show, like the gun wasn't working, or the teleporter wasn't working, or the quantum engine wasn't working, and then someone would say this, did you try reversing the polarity? Nobody knows what that means, and it was perfect. A writer's like, this is awesome. We'll just reverse the polarity on whatever it is, on the gun or the engine or the, the, the phone booth. <laughs> and then the engineer on the show, whoever was the thinking person, they'd be like, hmm. <laughs> they would say, that just might work. <laughs> and then they would reverse the polarity, and bam, it would work, Right. Well, here's the thing. It, it got to be such a running joke that people would roll their eyes. And now when you go back and watch 90s and 2000s science fiction, you're like, oh my gosh, I hear it now. Um, it, it was kind of a throwaway phrase. It, it was like a lazy writer thing. Let me ask you a question that I mean sincerely. Do you believe that Jesus is a lazy writer? I don't. I think he was very intentional. So when he introduces this phrase, which again is in the same mountain range of something he said earlier, hey, you've heard it said an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth? Bro, dream bigger. He reverses the polarity and he says, instead of considering limiting yourself from messing things up, what if you started to dream about the good you could do? Do you ever notice the phrase in the golden rule that I never noticed until this week? 30 years I've been a Christian and I never noticed this. Whatever you wish. I've always heard the golden rule like be a good person. Don't jack with people. Like do good stuff. And I thought of it as this very self-contained I need to make sure that I keep my nose clean. I do the right thing in any situation. Kill him with kindness. But it was very limited to me. Jesus is actually saying Oh, watch the mountain range. I really want you to embrace adding God's goodness to your definition of who your father is because if he is the headwater and source of your joy, then here's what I want you to do. I want you to start considering outside of yourself the team that you work on engineering this patch for the company that those dummies didn't get it right and now we're on the clock trying to get this patch so that the API interacts with the CMS and blah, blah, blah. I don't know your world. I, I think we all just it, like learned that, okay? And your team is stressed. You get to drive to work and you get to... I wonder what would be a source of joy for my team. Your wife has been going through a season. And instead of you writing her off as a burden, I wonder if you're praying for your wife, you start to wish, I wish this was true for her, and I wonder if God could work it through me. Do you see Jesus is introducing the concept that the golden rule isn't supposed to frame you and like, all right, I'm supposed to look the part and act the part and be the part. The golden rule is saying, once you're convinced that God is the headwater and source of joy, you start to daydream about where the river can flow. Like, oh, wow, 
I know some people that it would be amazing if something happened to them. And I think it's pretty cool on a weekend where we're highlighting the benevolence of what our church does for others, that Jesus is begging you to be the sort of person that's convinced that God's goodness moves from him to you and from you to others. Oh, it's so cool. We need to keep moving. You don't know how far behind I am. You should be terrified right now. Um, oh, and I will say before we move on from this, I think I read this through the idolatry of American self-sufficiency. And let me explain what I mean by that. I literally drive to my house and I see my neighbors and I think, oh man, it'd be so cool if... But then I drive into my garage, I close my door, and I don't extend a hand because I know that I've been taught to not need people. And I've been taught, well, you didn't think it through, you didn't plan ahead, you didn't save up, or you just need to deal with it. And like, why are you such a sissy? Just grit your teeth and get through it. And so I don't ask for help, and therefore I don't think to offer help because I don't want them to feel like a dummy because I feel like a dummy. And this weird vortex where the ethic of our culture works against what we can see in the depth of the beauty of what this calling is. And then a couple of years ago, my wife was diagnosed with cancer and we needed people right and left. And I noticed something of what it did in me. I am so joyful and proud of the lives of other people when they help us. And I started to think, what kind of dummy am I? Why would I not need help? Like, I love learning from other people that they're capable, capable and competent and selfless. And I actually have not become a train wreck, okay, not any more of a train wreck of a person than I've ever been by asking for help. And actually, I've noticed that when I ask for help, I'm so proud. I love to brag about other people when they help me. And so maybe if we can get over ourselves and be the sort of people that really enjoy investing and blessing and like helping, then we'll perpetuate pride and gratitude and joy and God's love and affection moves through us. But now we need to work on the third thing. And we need to work on letting God be God. This passage calls us to be working on letting God be God. And here's what I mean by it. It is a challenging end. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many. Jesus is speaking to a first century Jewish culture where, again, at the beginning of this mountain range, pretty important statement Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, you are not on your way to the kingdom. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees were the best of the best. They had the best ideas, and they were the power brokers, and they were the leaders. And Jesus is saying, yeah, 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 yeah. All of that is insufficient. It's all down here. It's so terrestrial. It's so base. Did you know that there is always an eternal way of looking at things? That there is a divine, spiritual affection that you can have for the day and age you live in? And I just want to ask you this. Do you think we live in a culture where the best of the best of us, the Pharisees and scribes, the power brokers and the leaders, keep exchanging ideas that are pretty base, pretty insufficient, pretty weak, that are pretty just managing death and managing retaliation, and I'm so sorry, I'm going to do a callback. I think a lot of times the thinkers of our day and age listen to what the other side said and they don't think of something that's above it. They just reverse the polarity and just say the opposite. I mean, I just feel like I'm living in a day and age that is exactly first century Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says to it, he says, the way that leads to destruction 
is pretty darn wide. Dr. Tony Evans, right up the road in Dallas, Texan, he says this about the moment we live in. He says the cultural left wants to pull God off his throne and the cultural right is wringing their hands ready to take his seat. And that is the, that is the, <laughs> that is the moment we walk out of, of all these environments 24-7, ready to shame, pout, blame, scream, yell, really not willing to solve or sacrifice or do much of anything. And it feels like, I, I mean, if I slow down and I read the Sermon on the Mount, it's like, was he speaking to first century Israel or was he speaking to 21st century America? And he just warns, he's like, if you settle for those things down there, it feels powerful, but you're walking towards destruction. And then he says this, though. He says, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, but those who find it are few. So, wait a second, Tim, bragging about God being good, compelling me to be a vessel that advances, that I sit around and daydream about goodness for others, why would Jesus say that it's hard and that it's few? Well, let me remind you of everything that he's been calling us to in this sermon. Love your enemy, surrender your anger, judge yourself before anyone else. Woo, I did not like that week. Thank you so much, Eric Creekmore. <laughs> surrender your lust, make peace with people, shift your finances. What kind of dummy would talk about money in American culture? Walk a mile in someone else's shoes. It's a lot. And here's the thing. All of those things seem on the surface like they're weaker than the money machine of right and left America. They seem like they're insufficient to meet the task. That how would those things possibly be more compelling and usher in a kingdom when this country is wealthy and strong and mighty? This country's broken and they're grasping at straws and they're yelling about it as they do. And then our sweet church has the opportunity to walk through the mountains of the Sermon on the Mount and hear from Jesus again a single concept that advances God into the world. And I'm going to say something that might sound trite, but I believe it with all my heart. God, living eternity through my life in front of the others who don't know him is more powerful than all of the blur of culture. And Jesus says, that's hard to believe sometimes. And there's a challenge in that. And there's a pressure to it. But y'all, I just believe all of it's true. I believe Jesus is not a lazy writer. I believe that the things that he's asking us to consider and to wrestle with and do are going to fit me for the next 10 to 20 years of American culture because Christians can advance the kingdom. Amen? Oh, so there's two things I want you to consider as we close. This simple little phrase right here, enter by the narrow gate. Will you consider, would you tell God, God, I struggle with believing that you're good at all times. I do. And sometimes I do want you to show up in a circumstance more than just show up. That would be so worthwhile wrestling over. And some of you, You've been around Christianity, maybe you're new to Hill Country, but you have not just yielded to Jesus as Savior, as God, as above it all. You've maybe added morality to your plate, maybe you wrestle with concepts, but you've never just stopped and said, you know what, 
I admit that I'm on a path that's leading to my destruction. And so in a minute, we're all going to pray, and I'm going to invite you to surrender your life to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I believe that you're good. And Lord, that belief sustains me through things that you call me to or from. And God, I'll admit, sometimes I struggle with those things, but God, you've brought me to a place in my life where I do not struggle with you. And Lord, I pray that you would elevate our church, that we would be people that regardless of circumstance, we are quick to say, well, I know God is good in it. And Lord, I pray that you would mature us in that. And then there are some of you right now online, Leander and Steiner are here in this room, and you've kept God at arm's length, and you've tried to manage your own righteousness, and you've tried to do this life all on your own, and maybe for whatever reason, today is the passage where you saw, oh my gosh, I am walking down my own wide decision path, and I never really assumed that it was leading to my own end, but I see it now. Could I ask you to do this? In the quietness of your heart, in the space where you're sitting, would you tell Jesus, Jesus, I admit that I'm walking my own path. I admit I have sin I can't solve. I admit I have no righteousness on my own. And Jesus, I believe that you are and you've accomplished everything I need to have. And in this day, I choose you. I put my faith in the person of Jesus. And as a church, we'll rejoice that you made that choice. Lord, use Hill Country to brag about, live like, and advance Jesus in an age that needs him. In your name we pray. And everyone said, amen.